Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to Strength to Strength. Uh, this morning, we're happy to have um, Brother Arnold Eby with us, and he's going to be speaking about the story of God's hand in Bangladesh. So I think we'll uh, begin here with um, prayer and then give the time to Brother Arnold. So let's, um, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. Thank you for allowing us to come together like this uh, this morning. We thank you for um, your call upon our lives and bringing us to the place where we can uh, know you. Lord, I just pray that you would um, um, send more workers into the vineyard to reach more people for you. You have um, done great things in our lives, and uh, we want to spread the message to others about how you can uh, bless them as well. So thank you for uh, Brother Arnold's um, story that we're going to be hearing about, and uh, just pray that you bless him and bless this time here as we are assembled together. Pray for all of your people around the world, and uh, just pray that your kingdom may advance on this earth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So welcome to all, and uh, welcome Brother Arnold here this morning. So um, I think um, we'll allow him to introduce himself. And um, yeah, so if everyone, everybody would just uh, turn your microphones off, unless you're going to be speaking, and then um, we will proceed. So Arnold, the time is yours. Very good. Greetings to all of you. Uh, probably most of the people I don't know, but hopefully um, something that I share could be inspirational to uh, you all. Um, a little bit about myself. I live in Bedford County, Pennsylvania. Uh, I'm married to Janet Beachy, and we have two children, uh, Austin and Tanya. Uh, what may be of interest to some of you is that I was single until I was 46. So I've only been married just a little over three years. So adds a little uh, perspective to some of my activities of life. Uh, I'm a member of the Life in Christ Church in Cumberland, Maryland. I work together with uh, four of my brothers as partners in um, a sawmill. Uh, that's where I spend most of my time when I'm home. I do make shirts and sell shirts on the side. I get them made in Bangladesh. One of the things that um, I connected with being over there. And um, I still work with a as a volunteer with Christian Aid Ministries. So uh, I'm busy most of the time. In fact, uh, some people think too much of the time, which I'd agree with. Um, so today, um, it's basically going to be a, a story uh, on a walk down memory lane, I guess, as Bryant put it. And it's a, a very personal um, story because I find myself uh, involved in the narrative of the story and realize that uh, – the role I played was very imperfect, and yet uh, God somehow chose to allow me to be part of that story. So um, I find that very interesting. Now, um, I'm going to try to keep the story concise because there are so many bunny trails that I could go down and so many things that have happened. Uh, but I'm going to try to keep a little bit of a narrative 
Uh, and it made me think of John 20, 30 to 31, where it says, And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. So Jesus did many things that wasn't recorded, but they recorded these for a purpose. So I'm going to try to keep the story line uh, purposeful because it could go very, very broad. The story starts back in um, November of uh, 15 of 2007. A cyclone or what we would call a hurricane hit the country of Bangladesh. And uh, Bangladesh is one of the most populated countries in the world. Uh, I suppose most of you know where it's at. It's sort of cradled in the corner of India and touches uh, just against Myanmar on its bottom side. Uh, Thailand is a little bit off to the east yet, but it's actually bordered three sides by India. It's one of the most populated countries in the world with a population of about, I think, 1,900 to a square mile. And the U.S. averages 70. Just to give you a little picture, you're never alone in Bangladesh. There's always people around you. Uh, in fact, uh, a man I'll talk about later said that Bangladesh only has two natural natural resources, mud and people. So, but, um, and it's also 90% Muslim. The balance are Hindu at about 10%, and then they give another percent in there that's going to be made up of a third of a percent are Christian. Half of that even would be considered Catholic. So when the, the term Christian is anything in that category, it's a third of a percent in the country. Um, in 2007, on the 15th of November, a, uh, a cyclone hit the, the country. And um, I think it was a category four when it hit and it wiped out thousands and thousands of acres of, of crops and, and cattle and houses. Uh, the actual, the most damage actually came from the storm surge itself. The country is almost at sea level. It's about um, 30 foot above sea level in Dhaka city. And so the rivers are tidal. Uh, the rivers flow in when the tide's coming in and out when the tide goes down, uh, all the way into Dhaka City. It's so so level. So when the storm came in, it drug a lot of storm surge in across the uh, the land, and um, the people there told us that it was it came over the riverbank 15 foot deep. So it was a lot of a lot of storm surge that came in. Um, so I had begun to uh, volunteer with CAM uh, as a single person during their international crisis projects. Uh, in 2005, I started, went to Indonesia after the uh, tsunami had hit there. And so when this um, happened in Bangladesh, uh, CAM contacted me and wanted to know if we would go over, do research, see if there was a need for a project and uh, uh, organize that. So. Uh, myself and a man by the name of Glenn Zimmerman traveled there uh, in December of 2007, um, assessed the country as, yeah, definitely could use help. And so uh, CAM decided that we would um, do a project there in 2008. So when we did, to work in another country like that, you can't just work on your own. You have to be like an organization in the country. So as we, Christian Aid is not registered in the country, we had to find a partner organization to work with. So we met with quite a few different organizations. And as soon as we mentioned bringing volunteers, it was just, no, 
the, the subject just ended. They weren't going to deal with volunteers in their country. But if we would make them a donation, they would, you know, do something with it. And that wasn't exactly what we were interested in. Uh, so we finally found um, a Habitat for Humanity that said, uh, yeah, they do uh, volunteers and they would accommodate uh, us bringing volunteers in the country to build houses in the uh, south part where these houses were destroyed. So we worked a deal out with them where uh, they chose the area. We had nothing to do with choosing the area of the project, but they did agree to us to let us be in full control of the volunteers, which is unusual for Habitat. Generally, Habitat wants to have charge of the volunteers. We arranged it where we were in full control of the volunteers. All they provided for us was uh, house kits and also helping to determine who the beneficiaries would be. So they uh, chose this working area in a town, uh, or in, actually it's sort of like a county, the easiest way to describe it, called Mirjaganj. So, um, we traveled to that area as we were in charge of the volunteers and we uh, went everywhere and finally found this house in a village called Shubikali that we thought would have enough rooms to accommodate this group of people that were going to come. Well, that worked until the local government found out what we were about to do and they said, there is no way that you're going to stay in that house. There's absolutely no way. The house isn't secure. They were nervous about having that many volunteers, uh, you know, just in the middle of nowhere that they were responsible for. And so they told us that we needed to go. They, they had the building for us. It, it was south of the town, about three miles, which was the opposite direction of our working area. So we, we actually never um, built any houses around the location where we actually lived. That was all north. We traveled north every day to do that. But they had this building that they said that was sitting empty and they would let us stay in it. And if I can figure out how to do a screen share here, maybe I can show you a picture of what that house looked like. That's good. Did that get it to you? You got it. Okay. So this is the, the government building that they uh, told us that we could live in, which was actually the, the, the best building that we could have found. If you can see this top floor had four sets of rooms, the bottom floor had four sets of rooms, and then there was a bigger opening over here, a room. And so we were able to actually bring teams of, of about um, 18 volunteers at a time, plus a set of house parents and uh, work crews could all stay in this building. We put bunks in these rooms and stacked everybody in them. So that building was um, a very interesting and was a real blessing to us. And um, I find this very interesting that this happened because of a particular thing. Um, we were not the ones who chose the working area. We were not the ones who chose the building to stay in. But there was a man who lived in that area that I think God wanted us to meet. And I'll try this again, except that's the wrong picture. There was this man that lived here. If you can see it, it's this man right here. Can you see my, um, my mouse over this gentleman? Yes. We, he would regularly come to a uh, tea stall just beside our property to drink tea. And he would talk to us. Uh, he spoke English very slowly, but um, 
he was obviously competent. And um, to this day, I'm not sure if I know what his name is. He was always referred to by the local people as the ex-head schoolmaster. He had actually started the local school, um, was a very educated man and wealthy by most Bangladeshi standards. And uh, he would sit there at this tea st uh, stall and drink tea and tell us that his son was the consular general in Los Angeles. And uh, I doubted that. Like, how could this man from this little backwater village, his son be the consular general in LA? And so I took it with a grain of salt because um, everybody would, in Bangladesh would like to go to the US or do something in the US. And most times when they get here, if they manage to get a visa, they get a, a job as a laborer, not in the consulate, you know? So no, he insisted that his son was the consular general. So just about as our project was winding down, one day here come a man down the road on a rickshaw and he, Abu Zafar, had come back home from the U.S. to visit his dad. And as soon as he saw me along the road, he stopped his rickshaw and bailed off and he said, uh, hey, my dad has been calling me and telling me about this group of volunteers that's in his village and um, how they're building houses and all this. And he said, I, I just need to talk to you about this. He said, could you come to my father's house tomorrow evening for supper? Or he said, for dinner. He said, I'd like to have dinner with you. And I'd like to know how this all worked out. How did it work for you? What challenges did you face, and et cetera? I said, of course, I'd love to meet with you. Because it so happened to be that uh, as the project was running down, uh, there was a, quite a few volunteers had sort of gotten a, a heart for the people there and was wondering if there's some way that we could build off of this project, do something with it other than just a humanitarian project. Could we move it on to something else? So I thought, well, here, this, this could be, just be it. So we went to his father's house the next evening, had supper with him and uh, had a great discussion about what all we, we were doing, how it all worked out fine. And he's like, well, uh, our country only has uh, two natural resources he said mud and people and he said people don't like it but we export people it's just the way it is he said would you consider a, a votech school so that when our people get to travel abroad that they could actually get a better than pushing a broom type of a job because that's about all they get and uh, i said like what do you have in mind he said well he said anything from horticulture to husbandry to those or construction and I thought, I do not know how to teach any of that in your country. And the chances that they actually get a visa eventually to use it is low. I, I didn't even know where to go with that. And so the, sub, the conversation kept going on. And finally, he said, what about teaching English? He said, our, a lot of our higher education in the country is actually taught in English because they simply don't have the textbooks of, with that level of education in Bangla. So when you get to university, a lot of the higher education is taught in English. And he said, when the children leave the village, they don't know enough English when they get to university to pass the exams. And so they fail. He said, would you consider teaching English? I said, well, I do speak English. And incidentally, I had taken training to do TESOL, how to teach English to speakers of other languages. I said, that might be something that would be more feasible for us. So I said, let us talk about it. We'll need to discuss it for a little bit and I can get back with you. So we, the project ended. Uh, and end up back home that summer. And uh, I made arrangements with him and a friend and I flew to LA and met him at the consulate there and discussed this idea of teaching English. And uh, he said, I'll take care of all the visas if you go over and teach English. 
So we said, okay, um, I think we can arrange that. So uh, my parents actually got drawn into this thing and they decided they would go as the uh, house parents uh, for this team of English teachers. And about five of us um, went over and went into the public school and they gave us time out of their classes and we tried to teach English to those students, which is about like supervising a zoo. There, they have, there's very almost no classroom control at all, and it makes it feel like you uh, waste a lot of time, but it does put you right in the middle of people. So the school that we were teaching in had like 500 students, and within a short time, you start getting invited into their homes, all want you to go to their houses and see where they live and all that stuff. So teaching English is just a, actually a, a great way to be in the country. Um, so he helped us get in the country and get started as English teaching. I do not know. Uh, oh, and another thing that was interesting, two weeks after I met him at his father's house, his father passed away. And I can't think but that the, that God's hand was somehow in that, that he was able to connect us with, with the son before the father passed away for some unknown reason, because now the father is no longer there, which is probably a blessing because um, we get complaint. We, we've been reported and complained about with our religious teaching so many times that I'm not sure what would happen if his father would have been there, but the, uh, the son's influence is so great in the community that they get to do what they want to do, but there's no one there for them to complain to complain to. And so, um, when people complained about us passing out Bibles and Bible story books, it kind of hit a dead end street. And so that maybe that's, maybe that's why God removed the father from the picture. I don't know that anyway. So I'm going to drop the narrative there, although that is still running. There's a whole story there to be told, but I'm going to drop that and back back up to where the volunteers were coming. We were trying to bring uh, about 18 volunteers in every two weeks into the country, and uh, I didn't speak a word of Bangla. So um, we were introduced to a man who was an English professor at a, at a agricultural university in Dhaka City. Uh, as a translator person for it. So what he would do is uh, arrange uh, vans to meet the team at the airport. And then we would have to go to a guest house. Everybody could get a shower, get a breakfast. And then we would travel to the south part of, of Dhaka City where the river was. And we would put them on an overnight launch or what we would call a ferry that had uh, rooms on it with beds upstairs. The bottom floor, all the poor people just laid on the bare metal. But uh, we would have rooms upstairs and then it would travel all night. And then the next morning you would arrive at the working area. And then on the way back out, we would again have to meet the ferry, have vans ready, get them a meal, whatever, on the way back out of the country. So he worked for us um, basically as a translator and arranged everything that uh, took place. So as soon as he found out that we were going to teach English, well, immediately he had interest, too. And um we should come to his village in North Bangladesh and teach English. And uh, we said, well, we don't have enough volunteers to do that, let alone two different parts of the country. So we actually taught English there two years in Charkali in the south. And then he was back on our case again. That we, have, we have to come to his village in the north <coughs> excuse me, to teach English. So we told him, um, okay, we'll consider it if if God would give us enough volunteer teachers to be able to go to the North. 
And we decided that number, if I remember right, was 18, was how many we would need to start in a second area. And a set of house parents. Well, I guess God took us up on the challenge because we got exactly 18 volunteers and a set of house parents. So uh, this man whose name he's also a Muslim, um, took us to his village in the north, introduced us to the school up there and uh, told us how we're Christian people and we're real Christian people, not just the ones you hear about on TV and all on and on and on. He went about all this thing and uh, arranged for us to teach English in a local school there in his home village, which um, I'm trying to remember how many students is in that school. It's one of the smaller ones, probably had about 400 students in the secondary school. Just that's from class six to 10. So we, we got there. Um, there's a completely new area to us. It wasn't even a, like an area we had worked in or had any connections to. So all, all the contacts was just wide open. And um, so we just started teaching. I think we might have taught a week. And um, we were sitting down for supper and we had a knock on the door. So we answered the knock and there was um, a family, if I remember right, of about three or four members were standing outside the door and they had a piece of paper. And uh, this paper was written in English because they didn't speak any English. And it said that their son was dying of cancer and they needed someone to donate blood that was B positive. And so we kind of discussed a little bit and everyone said, no, they, didn't, they don't have B positive. B positive blood. No one, no, no one on the team had B positive blood. I said, well, I don't even know what I have. I, like, I'm clueless. I've never given blood. Um, I've no idea what my blood type is, but I said, hey, I'll go, I'll go get checked. And if it's B positive, I'll give blood to someone that's dying. That's not a, not a problem. So I went along with them down to the clinic the next day and, um, or like a little hospital. And it was bordered right beside the school where we were teaching, like the wall of the of this hospital was the boundary wall for the school. So we went there and uh, the man in charge wanted to know what I came for. And I told him, well, they wanted blood for this patient. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I said, I want to just get checked and see if I have B positive blood. He said, okay, so they checked. Sure enough, I was B positive. So he said, um, okay, uh, we'll give blood. You can give blood. Oh, they had to do some kind of test. He said, you want to go up and meet the patient while we do this? Oh, they had to check me for, um, uh, HIV positive, whether I was HIV or anything like that. So no, well, it takes 15 minutes to check the first. Would I like to go up and see the patient? I said, sure, I'll go see the patient. So we went up and saw him and he definitely looked like he needed help. And I'll show you a picture of him here directly. And uh, so I went back down, I gave blood for this man and left and went back to the house. And we got back to the house and I was like, I don't know. That just didn't seem like that was an adequate thing just give blood and just walk away from it. So we talked about it a little while and I don't remember if it was yet that day, I think it was the following day that our team, actually we went back to the hospital, met the, um, the director of the hospital again and said, um, was wondering to know if we could go and pray for this, this young man. We'd like to pray for him. And you yeah, sure, sure, no problem. No problem, we could go pray for him. So we went up to this his room and um, 
Let me see here if I can show you a picture of him. Wow, what did I do here? Here was the young man that was laying on the hospital bed. And so uh, we knelt around his bed and we all took turns praying for him. And when the prayer was done and I opened my eyes up, um, I was a little bit taken back. I think every nurse and every staff person in that hospital had gathered in that room. I guess word kind of traveled pretty fast in the hospital. and. Um, a lot of foreigners, I guess, just don't come into hospital rooms there and pray for people, apparently. And uh, uh, yeah, I was I was t taken back just a little bit. And uh, so this man, and I'll show you another picture. This man right here was the um, the man in charge of the hospital. And if you can see, that's me sitting right here, but that's when I didn't have quite as much have a beard, okay? But that's still me. Anyway, uh, so this man said to us, uh, "Tell me who you are. Like, what? Why? Are you, what are you doing here? What, what's happening? Why are you in Bangladesh?" So we told him, "Well, we uh, are teaching English in the school right here beside this um, hospital. Um, every day we have classes with the students, and um, yeah, we just started last week, and so we'll be here for a little while." And um, he said, oh, oh, that's very interesting. Very interesting, he said. He said, well, my, I, I have a son-in-law. And uh, he said, he likes English very well. He said, um, I'm going to tell him that you're here. And uh, said, okay. So I assume it must have been the very next day. There was a man showed up. Let's see if we can do this again. Whoops, I think I need to get rid of this picture. A man showed up in the schoolyard. Where is the one I'm looking for here? Well, this one will work. Thought I had another one here. This man showed up in the schoolyard. And he said... Um, that his father-in-law told him that we were there teaching English, and he was wondering if um, I would teach him English. So I said, well, our schedule is pretty full. I mean, we're already teaching how many classes at, at the school, and I didn't really have time for a private tutoring, but if he wanted to speak to the teachers at the school, I was teaching a class for the teachers, he would be more than welcome to join that class if um, the teachers of the school allowed him to do that. But th that would be their uh, option, whether they wanted to do that or not. So he met with them and they said, sure, no problem. He could uh, join the class. So uh, the next day he started coming to my English classes. Now, I'm a little bit puzzled because I have another picture here that I don't remember anything about. But we went back apparently at one point and sang for that young man yet too. 
And if you see right here on the corner of this picture on the right side is this man. And I don't remember this scene, but I found this picture when I was looking for this talk. So apparently, um, and this is about the second end of the second week of being there. So apparently we told him that we were going to sing there or his father-in-law did because he came to that um, the hospital room when we sang there. So, um, so he uh, uh, joined the English class, and um, this went for a little while. And uh, I could tell he was a very conservative Muslim. Uh, what's very interesting is later he told me that his intent was was to convert me. He thought, well, here's a foreigner. It's going to teach him English. And while he's at it, he's going to teach me Islam. I didn't I was not aware of that aspect of his um, endeavors when he showed up. In fact, if I'd have known who he probably was, I probably would have just deferred on the whole issue of even having him in my class. But uh, he was there for, I don't know, maybe attended for two weeks. He came every day to the class. And when a class ended one day, he uh, came to me as everyone was walking out the door and he said, I have a question for you. Um, I'm, I go to university and uh, he said, I've studied a little bit about world religions and I understand that Christians have an Old Testament and a New Testament. And I'm just curious, like, what's the difference between the two? So I'd sized this situation up and decided I was working with a very conservative Muslim. Um, the whole subject about Old Testament and New Testament hinges on who is Jesus. Because I believe that the Old Testament tells us why we need a Savior, and then it points us to that Savior coming. And then Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. That's what Jesus would have actually said. I didn't come to do away with it. I came to fulfill it. So the Old Testament is all pointing towards Jesus. And then the New Testament is about his coming. Well, if you know anything about Islam, uh, who is Jesus is the, one of the biggest fighting points that you can have. And I thought, wow, do I want to go down this road or don't I want to go down this road? So I said, you know what? Uh, we could discuss that sometime. I don't know if we have time today. I said, it's a pretty big subject. And he just looked up at me and he said, well, I have time. So he called my bluff. Because I was stalling. I'll be straight up. I was stalling for time. Because <laughs> I wasn't sure where I was going to go with it. So I thought, well, you know what? Here's the opportunity. The man asked the question. He deserves an answer. What more can I say? So I started talking. And um, I explained to him, uh, I started back in Genesis, and I said, um, we both agree that God created this world. Is that correct? He said, yes. And I said, he created Adam and Eve and put them in the garden. Is that correct? Yes. Without sin? Yes, that's correct. I said, um, then what happened? And he said, well, they ate of the fruit that they weren't supposed to eat. and." Um, God threw them out of the garden. I said, 
okay, that's just about right. But I said, something happened after they ate of the fruit and before they got thrown out of the garden. What was that? He said, um, not sure. I said, well, man became afraid of God. And he went and hid. And about 4,000 religions exist today. And essentially, all of them try to answer the question of what am I going to do next time I meet God? Even an atheist is trying to answer that question. He says, there is no God. I'm never going to meet him. So that's his answer to the, to the problem of being afraid to meet God. Hindus have some karma system that's going to eventually work them into a safe mode. Muslims have a theology too, and their theology says that if I do good deeds, they'll outweigh my bad deeds. I said, can you explain to me how that works? I said, because, okay, so like an example. So I have a cell phone and you steal my cell phone. That's a bad deed. Am I correct? We agree that that's a bad deed. I said, yeah. And I said, so I walk down the street and I see a beggar. And I give him $100. That's a good deed. Is that correct? He said, yes. I said, so can you explain to me how giving the beggar $100 fixes the problem of me stealing your cell phone? Because if good deeds outweigh bad deeds, that should somehow counter itself. He said, I don't know. I said, well, what's the problem? Didn't I give enough money? Should I have built a beggar a house? He said, no, I don't think that would work either. I said, well, I tend to agree with you, but I'm just saying that's your theory on it. I said, um, let's go back to the story as it's in the Bible and um, see what God says about this. And so I began to tell him about the, um, wait a minute. Let me do that. I began to tell him the story of the Old Testament to the New Testament. And I started writing on this chalkboard. Uh, I talked to him for almost two hours. And he never argued with me. He asked a few questions. Uh, Didn't have a whole lot more to say. And it's one of the things that I learned is that if they, if you can get a Muslim to ask you a question or anybody for that matter, they're willing to listen to what you tell them as opposed to me just trying to force it on them. So if you can get a person to ask you a question, it gives you the opportunity to speak because he had asked me a question. So I could answer his question. So I talked to him for about two hours and um, brought the subject to took clothes. And the next day he came back to school and he said, I, I, I got a, a couple questions I'd like to ask you about this discussion from yesterday. And uh, I said, sure. So it started almost every evening after the classes would leave over, he would somehow show up at our house. We would go <clears throat> out behind a wall out back of the house and we would talk and we talked. And we talked. And um, 
later I actually learned that this man was a highly, highly educated man. He had memorized the entire Quran. He was um, what you call Hafiz. He he was um, alim. He could he was knowledgeable in Islamic studies from seventy subjects or etc. and on and on. And we got into the the problem of sin and uh, Muhammad not being sinless. And after a while, he said, um, do you have a Bible? I would like to read it. I said, sure. I have one I can give you. So he left with a Bible. He began to read this Bible. And um, within a couple months, he had uh, accepted Christ as his Savior. He would actually sit in the mosque and read the Bible because he thought if he was sitting in the mosque, no one would question what he was reading because he was a very educated man, uh, and he was a religious teacher. So he actually sat in the mosque. His father's house um, was actually the edge of the mosque wall. So he would, because his fa- his whole family was religious teachers. And uh, when we got into the problem of sin, he actually uh, started going around to different madrasas and asking them um, why it is that they're not supposed to believe the Bible. He said, we are told this, but where in the Quran, where in the Hadith, where in the Islamic teachings do we actually find that we're not supposed to read this book or that there's somehow this book is no longer legitimate? He came back later. He said, I went to 17 different um, madrasas. He said, 15 of them, when I sat with their leaders, said, we actually have no idea. He said, at two of them, he said, they got angry at me. He said, very angry. And he said, I told them, don't get angry. Don't try to convince me with the strength of your arm. He said, I want to be a Muslim. I just want you to tell me where in our religious teachings, this is where this is, because I can't find it myself. So um, he come back. I guess that's when I gave him the Bible, and uh, he became a believer. And... um, before we actually left the area, here he is. Uh, this was the day of his baptism. There, and this is actually my father. My father and I actually baptized him. Here is another picture of that. Um, and this picture was actually uh, of one of our discussions the out back of the building. We were talking uh, that I showed you earlier. So uh, he became a believer and um, his, this is actually right after we learned to know him. This is him and his wife. And I think the picture that I'm looking for is behind this screen here. I wonder if I can move that. Yeah, but I wanted a picture of him and his wife. Okay, I thought I had another picture of him and his wife after that. Today, you can see him here. Um, This is him today, teaching a group of believers 
that grew out of, of his conversion. Uh, one of the things that he told me shortly after uh, his baptized is that he needed a group of people to meet with. And I said, um, I don't know where to do that here, but I would suggest that you begin to teach your the people that you know uh, about who Christ is. And uh, you'll soon have a group of believers to meet with. Here's one of them. This is actually this man's brother-in-law. Um, he was a radical. Um, he was a jihadist. He was on the way uh, going, learning to, um, st he was studying to join the, um, uh, the radicals in the country. That was him then. He was led to Christ, and here he is today as a minister, teaching the word. There is a, um, a growing church in the area. Uh, I've already had that picture. There's, there is today in that area, there's now eight churches. I believe it's eight churches that are meeting, and each of those churches has a minister and a deacon. And there's several hundred members. I'm not exactly sure how many that uh, members that actually is. And the longer it goes, the more I realize what this man gave up in his in his world to pastor a flock of believers there. Here is his full blood brother. He is a very, very high Islamic leader in the country. So much high that he is being flown around in a helicopter to give speeches. This is full blood brother, and his education is higher than his brother's. And to be flown around in a helicopter in America is big. To be flown around in a helicopter in Bangladesh is huge. And he says, uh, I've asked him already, is there any nostalgia? Do you ever wish that maybe you would have done something different? And he said, not for a second. He wouldn't trade the, his, his, the peace that he has today and his understanding for anything that his brother has. And he's been after my dad, and I don't know if he'll do it. My dad just travels back over again uh, this past week, but he wants to go with my dad to Dhaka, to the big mosque in Dhaka where his brother teaches from and is his headquarters and speak to him about the problem of sin. And if you want to do something, pray for my dad, because um, if that happens, that's, a, that's, 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 you can, you can, the, what that could mean can scare you. Uh, to no end. And we've had this happen numerous times. Um, we would get requests to go someplace to speak, to share the gospel. And he's like, I think this is a setup. And I said, you know what? It might be a setup, but we're going to go find out. And so if he would have the opportunity to go and talk with him, um, it's not what any particular person can say, but God can use anything. Uh, for his his cause, and he could open this man's uh, mind to understanding Christ. So the story goes on and on, uh, but I think I'm going to, I see it's quarter till, I, I'm going to kind of stop it there if there's uh, 
details that somebody wants to ask about, I could maybe fill in some details that could um, fill in some gaps in the story if there's if there's too big of a gap. Because I realized I understand everything that happened, and so maybe I didn't give enough details to connect some of the happenings together and left you a little bit in the dark. So if somebody has questions, they could ask questions. What hymnal do you use over there? Which what? What hymnal? Hymnal. You know what? That has been a big issue because um, Muslims don't sing. So to have a songbook for them is, it don't really exist there. And in fact, they wouldn't sing. So this group of, 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 okay, so this group of converts did not join an existing church. There was no Christian church in the area. So what they learned, we taught them, or they learned by reading the Bible, and they would not sing. They said, if we sing, everyone will know that we became Christians, and we're going to be in trouble, because Christians sing. The West sings. We're going to get in trouble. And I thought to myself, singing is part of being a Christian. It really is. And we would bring this subject up, and they just, it wouldn't go anywhere. It, this went on for two or three years. And then one day, I learned the story behind the song, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus. Does anyone know what that story is? Most of our songs come out of Europe. But the song, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus, comes out of India. In fact, it, it was originated in a tribe just beside the Bangladesh border. It's a story of a, um, of a village of um, um, they were very violent people. I, I was almost going to say they were cannibals, and I'm going to take that back. But anyway, uh, there were some missionaries had went to this village and uh, for many years, and finally a family converted to Christianity. And when they converted, within a day or two, the chief of the village called them into account for converting to Christianity. And he told the father that if you don't recant, give up your religion, we're going to kill your two sons. And he's saying, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. So they killed his sons. And then they said, he said, if you don't recant, we're going to kill your wife. And then the next verse of the song and they killed his wife and they said, we're going to kill you if you don't. And then he sang the third verse and they killed him. After all, the whole family was killed. The chief of the village said, something is strange here. Why were these people willing to die instead of change their belief? And so when I told, explained that song to them, how this was a part came out of their culture as a story of people who gave their life to follow Jesus, somehow it resonated with them. And they started to sing the song, I have decided to follow Jesus. That was their introduction to singing. And they do sing some songs now. Um, I think they found a, um, a Bangladeshi song book and adapted some of the songs to um, their language. Uh, and let me explain that a little bit. There are, there's two uh, basic languages that function in Bangladesh. 
when the first Christians came to Bangladesh, they only went to the Hindus. They did not reach out to the Muslims. So when they translated the Bible, they translated it using Hindu religious terminology. <coughs> when a Muslim reads that, it just catches him completely crossways. So that the Bible is also translated in the Islamic or Muslim or Arabic terms. And that's what they would use. So I think they found some songs that would have had the Hindu terms and they switched them to the Arabic terms. And they're actually starting to sing there, but they don't actually have a songbook that they can use. Well, that's great. I mean, I really appreciate that. But I was asking what, what hymnal you use when you're over there. When you sang uh, at the hospital room, what, what hymnal were you using? Um, I... Uh, actually forget I think I think what they have over there now is the the one that uh, John D put together uh, I, I'm drawing a blank on the name of it the I think that's what they're Martin using right Martin. now there you go <laughs> but that one wasn't actually out then I don't think I think we sang out of something different but I'm not I don't remember what it was of the song the uh, story you gave behind I have decided to follow Jesus if you want to read a graphic description of that incident, uh, Pablo's uh, latest book, No Turning Back, was named after that song, and he tells the story at the beginning of that book. Okay. So if you want a graphic okay. description of how that was, uh, take uh, read, read it at the beginning of that book. Yeah. Yeah, well, for me, our music comes out of Europe, but that song comes out of India. And somehow when they realized that that – that connected with the tribal people from their area, it put music in their hearts. And today they sing, but it took three years for that to happen. They didn't sing before that. Uh, do you folks have any uh, information about the ministry of Sundar Singh? He actually wrote the song based on that story. Uh, did he do any work in Bangladesh ever? Don't know that he did. Other than uh, you have to understand that the country of Bangladesh actually wasn't laid out that way until 1948. And then it became East Pakistan and West Pakistan. And then in 71, they fought for their freedom so that they could speak Bangla instead of Urdu. And it became the country of Bangladesh. Prior to that, it was all British India. So yeah. it could have been that some of his travels ended up in Bangladesh, but I I can't verify that. However, the, the tribe that he ministered to, those same there are pockets of those tribal people in Bangladesh, North Bangladesh. There are little pockets of villages of those of that tribal group still there. They're animists, and they're kind of sprinkled through the rest of the population. When did Sundar Singh live? What are the dates on him, and when did he die? I thought that was in the 1800s, am I correct? I don't actually have that on, the, on my fingertip. Actually, the missionaries who went uh, to the area where that song was written were from the revival in Wales. Uh, that's Assam Province, Right, isn't that's it? correct. Yes. Uh, yeah. A lot of people yeah. are aware Assam of the Providence. That tremendous revival under William Williams. Uh, sent missionaries all over mm -hmm. the place. And uh, the people who ministered there came from that revival in Wales. 
yeah, thank you for sharing and uh, want to open it up for uh, more questions and participation too. It's just amazing to me how we can like create our plans and um, yeah, basically lay out what we intend to do to um, create a difference, but it's actually uh, the Lord's doing that is uh, far more effective in um, bringing his kingdom to the world. 1889 to 1929. Yeah, yeah. Well, this, the the interesting to me about this whole story is is how God took us to a village where the consul general was from, and he got us into the country, and that was of no design of ours. Everybody else made those decisions for us that put us in that village. Otherwise, we would have never ended up in that village. We wouldn't even had to ended up in that area. But somehow or another, God sent us to that area, and there was the man who opened the door. And I don't know if to this day, if he knows what he actually did in its entirety. I, I know that he knows that, uh, that we teach uh, Christianity because he has told us that they've had complaints. This is the man right here, if you can see that. He's the consular general. He was in uh, the United States for quite a number of years, and then um, he's actually currently in I don't know that if he understands what he did in bringing us in the country and um, how the young man in the north that was dying of cancer, he actually ended up dying. But how that brought in another whole era, I don't think none of us understood. It was just God opening doors and we just kept walking through them. There was no plan on our part of trying to pick a strategic spot or strategic group, anything. I think that God planned all of that because he had a man up there who was seeking for him and didn't realize it. My question well, is Well, maybe uh, he did. He told us he told us that he actually had went to a Catholic church and asked them for a Bible 10 years prior to that. And uh somehow the interaction that he had made him mad and so he pitched the book. But go ahead, John. My question is, uh, is the leadership uh, under the uh, nationals or who is uh, the leadership in, in this movement now? 100% nationals from the beginning. Praise God. Amen. We go there. We go there. Um, like right now, my dad went there again and he'll go up and do some teaching. Uh, what he'll do is in the morning, sometimes the leaders of the churches will come over for an hour Bible study with him. Uh, the only thing that we did there was provide um, the, the structure to start the church, gave them their um, responsibility, and then commissioned them to do their own baptizing and help them to organize their leadership. But their, their church functions, um, my dad is, have, was ordained to be there as an evangelist for them, but he's been out of the country since March. And just now, or last March, so he was going for almost of a year, and um, he keeps in contact with them, but they are functioning on their own. So do you have very many defectors from the faith once they decide to uh, surrender to Christ? We've had about three in all You're breaking up. Could you say that again? About three that left, but it was over marriage issues. Or am I still breaking out on you? 
No, it's good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sorry about that. Uh, what we have a little bit of it's 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 a whole different culture, and we're we're still trying to help them work their way through it. And um, uh, our bishop just was over about a month ago helping them try to decide again what to do with a situation where it was an arranged marriage, and then after the arranged marriage, the parents suddenly took the daughter back. They said, oh, there is no such of a marriage and tried to disannul it. And they're like, what do we do now? So they went over there and just sat down with them and started looking at all the Bible, the scriptures surrounding the subject, interviewed the person that was involved, exactly what took place and just tried to help them find a way forward. And um, he he's still uh, an active member of the church, but about uh, one or two ladies. And I don't know how to I don't know how to handle it, but girls that had converted, their parents went and married them off to a Muslim. The parents were not believers. The daughter became a believer. The parents went and married them off to a Muslim and they disappeared. And we're not used to that. I don't know what to do with that. I'd like to believe that they're still following Christ, even though they can't come to the meeting anymore. You know, I, I don't know where that goes. Another man that, um, that left uh, discovered that here he had a second wife and no one knew about it. He was not divorced. He just had multiple wives. And uh, the leadership sat down with him and it's like, you're going to have to choose one wife and we think it should be your first wife, not the second wife that you married that you would live with which he was actually not living with his first wife. That's why no one realized that he had another wife. Uh, he had a son that was taking care of that wife. And so they're, he's not a member. He still says he'd like to. He says he wants to resolve the issue. But at this point, he's not. So <clears throat> that's basically about the, is, the main issue that, that people have left over. And I think there's only about three of them. So... What is the response of the Muslims and the Hindus? I mean, is there active persecution against the people who convert? It's not major. Um, what will happen most likely is they'll no longer let you buy food from their store. They won't haul you in their rickshaw. They won't um, come to your house and eat with you anymore. But there is... There's always the potential of people being beat up. Occasionally, it does happen that someone gets killed in the country, but it's not um, it's not super prevalent. Now, um, uh, the first man that, that the first convert there, his mom said, "I'm hiring someone to kill you. I will get rid of you. We're not going to have this in our family." But nothing's ever happened. Nothing has ever happened. So I'm not sure whether God's just protecting the man because he still needs him. What eventually happens someday, I don't know. At this point, other than like denying the person, the family members, not wanting to uh, associate with them, won't talk to him anymore and things like that, which is very, very um, uh, difficult for them because in Bangladesh, people operate very much in a family mode. That's how they function an extended family. So it is really seriously cut off from any kind of um, 
of support. So like if you would get sick or something, their families would help them out. Now their families won't help them. So they're kind of on their own. So one of the things that we had to uh, help them out with was learn to help each other as a church because people would have problems now and their families won't do anything for them. <clears throat> so how for the church to come together and help their members instead of relying on family was something that they had to learn. And that's not in Islamic theology. Like Muslims don't give to each other in a way as we do as a brotherhood to help each other. So those were concepts that we had to help them learn about how to handle their difficulties. But as far as like actively being beat up and uh, getting heads chopped off, no. Because the country is actually, it's Islamic, but it's not, it's not ran by uh, Sharia. So you should be protected by the government the problem is that when the policeman's also a Muslim and he kind of thinks, too, you shouldn't have converted, he doesn't look out for you very much. So there's that side of it. But And we've had a number of the uh, young men uh, who were having Bible studies at the university uh, get thrown in jail over it. But they would get out after a couple of weeks or something because they really had nothing they could charge them for. It's not illegal in the country. So they really can't hold them, but basically what they do is say they won't charge them. They'll say, you have to give us um, $100 and we'll let you out. And if you don't, you sit here and rot, which they can kind of do that. So in some ways, it, that, it's that kind of persecution. It's not like a real a dangerous per se, although I wouldn't. I've, I've, I've seen their mobs and I've seen people get beat up. It can happen. There was a question that came in through the chat. It says, Arnold, you mentioned the jihadist movement in Bangladesh. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, there is a, there is a, um, uh, a group there, and I just drew a blank on what's called, but it's equivalent to the Taliban in uh, like in Afghanistan or something like that, which is actually what uh, these people were actually a part of. Uh, they were the radical far left. And... Um, uh, yeah, they would support terrorism. Uh, and every year there's bombs that go off in the country. But it's basically a lot of their um, the targeting that they did. Um, there was there have been a few Christian pastors in the country that got have gotten killed in the last couple of years. Um, Hindu um, uh, temples get burned, smashed. Um, uh, what was the other? Oh, but actually a lot of it is among extreme people. So um, this the the radical group there would be um, Sunni Muslim, but there's a, a, a Shia minority in the country. And sometimes when they have their festivals, there'll be bombs that go off and they almost all go back to this um, radical group that has done it. Um, and then uh, there's probably, that's what I forgot. My wife just told me what the name of it. It's called Jim. Um, and then here in the last couple years, they have actually attacked several um, atheist bloggers. I don't know if the men, people are actually blog uh, atheists or not, but they would um, question uh, Muhammad and some of his teachings publicly on um, on social media. And a couple of them uh, and publicly got grabbed off the streets like there were witnesses and had their throats cut. But they've basically been um, 
what they've accused as being atheists. So there is there is that in the country. There's there's radicals there. But there's also a very heavy a uh, um, uh, what's the word I want to use? Um, I'm drawing a blank. There's another group that's that's in that's very much in the country, and they're very um, uh, everyone's everyone's fine. They're all peace loving, and that kind of counters some of that. Do they have the scriptures yeah, in the native language? They do. They do. Arnold, did you want to mention his disappearance and his 16-month prison experience initially? Well, I wasn't sure we're running over seven o'clock. That's some of the bunny trails. I wasn't sure how far I wanted to go with all that. But um, yeah, and I can mention that uh, shortly after uh, was baptized, um, the police picked him up off the streets and he disappeared in jail for about a year and a half. We lost complete contact with him, had no clue where he was or even what all the problems was. But it actually, it was all said and done, we discovered that when he had been in university, there had been a religious leader of a different stripe that had gotten killed in the country, and it was tied back to the mosque or the uh, the madrasa of which he attended, which he was part of a radical group. And they never could determine who actually killed the man. And so they tried to make a case against all of the students of the school. And he said that he was never part of the group that was involved in killing him, although he doesn't say that he don't know who he thinks did it. But they put him in jail for about a year and a half until they finally decided there was no evidence to hold him. And so they finally released him from that. And he would just tell us that um, it's part of what he suffered for the bad choices of his life that he made by being part of a radical group in the country, that he got tied in with radical um, – um, he got blamed for the activities of other radicals simply be, of a, by association. So like the whole group got blamed for it. And because he was a leader, his name got tied to it. But during that time while he was in the uh, in the, the jail, he spent the time going through Hadith and the in the Quran and made himself a, <clears throat> a book <clears throat> of all of the problems that Islam has been hiding. That no one he said, all of the religious teachers know these things. They won't tell you, but they don't know what to do with it. And so he was going to write a book and expose all this. And when they released him from jail, he was hiding the papers in the, a library among some religious books because he had no place to put it in his cell. And when they decided to release him, they released him so fast without warning, he didn't have time to take his papers with him. They got left in the jail. And I think it was just as good because I find uh, very few converts that actually come out of trashing Islam. If you hold up Christ, I don't need to trash Islam. Jesus trumps Islam every day of the week. So, and that was one of the things that would happen before he was converted. As we were discussing the New Testament and his realization started to waken up to who Jesus was, he would say, but then who is Muhammad? If this is who, then who is Muhammad? He said, I think you know something you're not telling me. And I was like, 
we could maybe discuss that, but I really think that if we understand who Jesus is, then we can understand who Muhammad is. I don't have to do that because he wasn't a convert. He was not converted yet. I was not going to throw Muhammad under the bus. I, I still don't want to because I don't need to. I can hold up Jesus and Jesus stands alone for who he is. And so as that would come around, I'd say, okay, let's discuss Jesus because then I think we'll see who Muhammad is. He'd say, yeah, yeah, that's right. And I can still remember the day he come in there and he's like, I've got it figured out. I've got it figured out. I said, what is it? He said, Muhammad was a false prophet. I said, I didn't tell you that. He said, no, I did. He said, I know what it was. And then um, as he was reading the Bible, all of a sudden one day he had called me up and he was very urgent. And he said, uh, I need to come talk to you. I said, Okay, I'd actually had plans for that day. And um, he's like, oh, no, uh, go ahead. Go. I said, no, I'll change my plans. I think this is urgent. He's like, no, no, you go. I'll come tomorrow. And when he came, he walked in the room, sat down, and he opened it up. And I think it's uh, Acts 20, verse 16, because we had never even discussed this. He opened this up to where Paul was giving his testimony. And he said, where uh, God said, uh, Ananias said, arise and be baptized and have your sins washed away. He said, I want to be baptized. And we had never even discussed that question. Because I was going to let that come up on its own. And um, so when that question came up, we had a discussion and he was baptized. So, <laughs> Amen. That's amazing. Somebody um, said in the chat, great job, brother. You have a very clear description of the work in Bangladesh and the struggles. And I can give an amen to that. So thank you very much for sharing. Would you lead us in prayer? Sure, I can do that. Thank you, gracious Father, for the opportunities that you have given us to serve in your kingdom. Lord, I just pray that you would continue to give us a vision of who you are and just pray that we could understand you in a better way and that we would um, be open to sharing the, the peace that we have received in our hearts with the people that we meet. I pray you would give us courage and strength, and I pray that you would be our mouthpiece and that you would take the words that we as humans speak and use them for your kingdom in a way that would draw men to you. I pray that our lives would also be examples of, of your person, and I pray that <clears throat> that we would ever strive to be uh, closer to you. Thank you for our brothers and sisters in Bangladesh. I pray you would be with them, give them wisdom as they understand what it means to walk with Christ in Bangladesh and in their culture and in their setting. I pray that you would continue to grant them safety, and I pray that many souls there would be drawn to you. Thank you for the opportunity to be in this meeting again today, and I pray that as each one goes, that this something could be that was said could be of inspiration and um uh, to serve uh, the people that they meet in daily life. Thank you for uh, each one here and pray most of all that you would be glorified. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Brother Arnold, for being on here this morning. You're welcome here anytime. Uh, for all of you, the message here this morning is uh, recorded and that will be posted online at strengthtostrength.org as well as all the messages are there. Thanks again and God bless your day. As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. <laughs>